Hi, Barnaby. So, Hi, Serge. How are you? Good, thank you. So, thanks for joining me today to talk about uh, male sexuality and especially um, exploring is male sexuality uh, inherently aggressive. It's a, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be part of this conversation, and it's a very important topic. So how would we get into the, the topic? Well, it's a topic that, uh, and I believe this is part of the reason you thought of this as a timely discussion, it's a topic which I think has very much come to the fore because internationally now we have become very aware of how many men harass women. And I think we have to, we've seen this with Donald Trump, we've seen this with Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, all the people that have recently occupied the news, and not just the news in the United States, but actually all across the world. Um, here in South Africa, where I live, you know, CNN is still regularly watched and people are talking about this and are talking about how men abuse their power. I think to answer the question that you want to focus on, which I think is an admirable question, uh, are, is male sexuality inherently aggressive? I think we have to be very clear about what we mean by aggression, because obviously that will include acts of violence, such as rape, and rape is internationally an epidemic all over the world, uh, as, as I think every woman and child is, is painfully aware. But also we have to broaden the conversation out beyond the violence of rape to talk about um, things like uh, uh, dynamics of domination, sexual and quasi-sexual expression in which the dynamics of domination are operative. And by that I mean things like the sexualized uh, hostilities that men perpetuate or perpetrate, excuse me, um, towards others, including their partners. So I think we need to broaden the aggression question, explicit violence into the implicit or perhaps implicit forms of coercion and harassment that men often engage in towards women and children, groping, stalking, all those sorts of things uh, that go on very frequently. And even I would include the a rather commonplace phenomenon of men who have the attitude that they must sexually satisfy themselves with their partners, male or female, without necessarily having any concern for the partner's pleasure, even if the partner has consented. I think we would need to broaden the question to look at all those sorts of phenomena, which is a very wide range of phenomena in which aggression of different sorts seems to be operative. And then I think we would also have to qualify the question slightly because I don't think you want to be put in the position that, um, for instance, Andrea Dworkin took in her book Women Hating in 1976 in which she says that the only non-aggressive or non-violent sexual activity in which men can engage is when their penis is flaccid. I don't think one would want to go to that extreme because I don't think you'd want to include that sex has to be soft and gentle. Uh, sex can be relatively rough. It can be aggressivized. 
if you want to use that word, but I think we have to use it with caution and with qualification. Uh, but it can be consensual and mutually pleasurable and yet be tumescent, wild, robustly vigorous, energetically lustful, and perhaps even aggressivized. And that's why I think we have to be very careful talking about male sexuality being inherently aggressive because clearly there are areas of sexual life in which it is, so to speak, aggressivized without being hostile. But there are also all these areas of life in which sex may not appear aggressive at all, but may in fact be hostile and be part of the power, a power dynamic or a dynamic of domination. So I think we have to carefully qualify how we talk about this topic, which is so important that we actually unpack it. Yeah. So, so I really appreciate the distinctions you make and, um, the, uh, notion of aggression and the difficulty about maybe the, what the word aggression can evoke. For some people, aggression is something that's inherently bad. For some people, aggression is part of our human uh, heritage is part of what makes us function. It's not inherently bad, and um, it depends on how it's used and the context and the meaning. Um, the notion there uh, goes a little bit to, for instance, the myth of Parsifal, uh, who wanted so much to be pure that he castrated himself. Yeah. And yeah. as a result, yeah. actually was not able to achieve uh his success of finding the Graal, because in his search for purity, he basically sacrificed his human condition. And so accepting some degree of aggression uh, does not mean the aggressivizing that you're talking about. I think that's an excellent point. I don't think, although Andrea Dworkin in her heyday in the 70s might disagree, I don't think we're calling for men to castrate themselves. Yes. So perhaps... Perhaps what we need to think about is on the is is to parse out the word aggression, because as you know in psychoanalysis there has been a long-standing tradition of saying that there are two basic drives, sexual and aggressive, and at various points in our development in our journey through life they can get fused and they can be differentiated. They can get separated or they can get in some way to collude and be undifferentiated. So I wonder if we should perhaps make the contrast between the following, the contrast between, on the one hand, violence, hostility, and the power dynamics of domination. Because if you take those out and we think of them as negative and we think of them think of them as part of the whole matrix and levels of violence that we encounter in our culture, then we open it up to the possibility that, as I was just saying, sex can be, in a certain sense, aggressivized in the sense that it can be rough, it can be tumescent, it can be wild, it can be vigorous, and so on and so forth. It can be lustful, but it can still be consensual, mutually pleasurable, and not caught up in the dynamics of power and domination. Does that make sense, to make that sort of a contrast? 
Yes, um, I, I want to speak both sides of my mouth. So from one side, I would say absolutely, totally. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. It provides a very useful way of distinguishing uh, what is consensual, mutually pleasurable, using uh, some of the very basic human drives in order to achieve a common goal in a respectful manner. Yeah. Uh, speaking from the other side of my mouth, I could say okay. that part of what you call wild um, can include moments in which actually the experience of e either of the partners can be that of experiencing a desire to dominate the other, but in a sense that's not turned into uh, something that is either disrespectful or actually uh, lastingly or, or doing anything to the other that uh, the other doesn't want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that this is very important. You see, you're, you're opening up here how complexly layered this whole question is and how careful we have to be when thinking about it and talking about it. So, for instance, in, the, in BDSM communities, uh, in Europe, in North America, and elsewhere, BDSM communities play with power and domination. And that's play. And play can be respectful, mutually pleasurable, it can be consensual and so forth, but it's play. And it's play with power and domination that is quite different from the raw reality of power and domination as enacted without mutual consent, without reciprocal pleasure, and so forth. So I think even here we have to be extremely careful about how we make these, some of these distinctions and evaluate the different sorts of sexual expression that people engage in. So where we're going there, maybe, is the notion that as we're talking about sex, it's difficult to separate it from a discussion of how we manage power and how comfortable we are with power and how we may be managing or mismanaging power. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good point. I, power is such a, a difficult word. <laughs> we're getting into such difficulties there. Power is such a difficult word because we as therapists talk about helping people to be empowered, yeah? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there is a, a, there is a very positive meaning of power. Uh, my colleague Cedar Barstow, for instance, has spent uh, almost two decades helping people to understand the ethical use of power. So maybe instead of power, we should talk about the dynamics of domination and subjugation. Because the dynamics of domination and subjugation you find everywhere in the world and to some extent everyone knows about them. They're in our socioeconomic relations, they're in our symbolic relations, they're in our interpersonal and, and intrapsychic even relations. And I think that domination and subjugation is what we need to be talking about. Um, there has been an argument, for instance, that rape is not really a sexual event. I can understand the argument because really the motive of rape is violence. It's primarily an act of violence rather than an act of pleasure. And it's an act of domination and subjugation. The rapist wants 
to dominate and subjugate and dehumanize the object, the, perp the victim of his perpetration. Now, I think we also see this in a, in a, in a form that can be, uh, that can at least appear entirely unaggressive. Namely, let's think about the man who has consensual sex with his partner, but does not give a damn about the partner's pleasure. In other words, uses his partner as an orifice for what is in a certain psychological sense a masturbatory act. Now that is an act of domination subjugation. It doesn't necessarily appear aggressive at all, but it certainly is, uh, has a substantial substrate of hostility involved. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So the concept then becomes domination and subjugation. And that's uh, where I would that's where I would place the argument. Yeah. So if you if you if you wanted to to frame the conversation we're having so that we could explore it deep more deeply, I think the question is how much is men's sexuality bound up in the motif of domination subjugation, which is an inherently hostile, dehumanizing, and disrespectful motif. It's also a motif that carried characterizes economic systems and political systems and cultural systems. But how much men are bound up in that and whether that is in any sense inherent to their sexuality or is it some way that their sexuality develops in the course of their life's journey that actually makes their sexual relations inherently hostile, inherently dominatory or caught up in the whole domination subjugation motif. And then I think we need to say, well, do we have a vision of sexuality that is not caught up in the domination subjugation motif? One of the interesting things about the BDSM community, for instance, just to go back to it, is that sure, people can go and be spanked or people can go and be whipped or people can be blindfolded and teased or any of those things. But in a funny way, in a, not funny, in a paradoxical way, it isn't hostile. It isn't about domination, subjugation uh, intrinsically. It's about playing with those relations in a way that actually can even help people to liberate themselves from those, those relations. So that, of course, is, is a contentious point, but, but it's at least worth considering. Yeah. I think if we look at hostility and we look at domination subjugation, we need to start to, to ask what makes men like this and how can we as healers help men to get out of it, uh, especially since many, many, many men are deeply, deeply committed to it in terms of their sexual uh, commitments. So, so... Am, yes. I make, am I making sense? Totally, yeah. totally. And I want to add a little something there uh, to, in a way, take a little break for a moment uh, in the sense sure. of um, saying that what we're talking about is very intense. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, we're all affected by this in a sense of having a sexual life. And you and I are men. But even if a listener is not a man, uh, you know, it's, it's a question of what they think about men, what their experiences are. Uh, and when we bring up the question of is male sexuality inherently aggressive, 
um, it's hard to also not be uh, touched personally, emotionally by that issue. Uh, and in a way that possibly there can be no way to win. So, for instance, if we were to conclude that male sexuality is inherently violent and aggressive, uh, then what does it make me as a man if I don't have those values to that it's good to be nasty, to put it in a simple way. Uh, on the other hand, if we agree to that and I say, oh, I'm not, does it mean I'm not a real man? So it brings up all kinds of issues, and I want to, uh, in a way, take a moment to breathe and to, um, to, to notice maybe the activation that may be happening uh, as people listen to this and pay attention to it inside and notice where you are as a listener uh, emotionally, maybe how it affects your body, your breathing, your tension, so that we come back to an embodied way of talking about these issues. And as we do that, uh, you know, so coming back to Barnaby's point about, you know, the various ways in which there is built-in aggression, that some of the built-in aggression might be essential to our biological heritage, and certainly at least some of it, if not much of it, uh, is related to the form of societies we live in. So, just Barnaby, how is it, for instance, for you as a man to be discussing this issue of, you know, is man's sexuality inherently aggressive? Well, I think that in terms of my personal journey, uh, I think that it is the case that aggression is an issue probably for all men because aside from anything else the whole image of masculinity that the culture pervades to us is one of power in the sense of power's domination and I think that ever since the 70s when men have started or some men have started to try to become aware of how to, for instance how to respond to feminism and what it meant about themselves and there have been there have has been a men's movement to try to do that, but the issue is, and this is why I was hoping to sidetrack the word aggression. The issue is not that one can avoid aggression within oneself, and the issue is not really that one can avoid that one harbors hostilities. The issue is to understand how, in relation to one's sexuality and one's body, the dynamics of power and subjugation play out domination and subjugation play out. So I think this is like a journey for all men. And I think it's a journey that in psychoanalytic terminology, there's a, there's a distinction in psychoanalytic theory that is buried in the literature. It's hardly made use of by any psychoanalysts. But there's a distinction between phallic sexuality and genital genitality. And genitality is 
much more reciprocal, much more consensual, much more mutual. Uh, and yet we know that rather few men actually attain genitality. <clears throat> the opposite of genitality, which is, I think, what all little boys get caught up in, is what is sometimes called phallic sexuality. And the interesting thing about that is that phallic sexuality is inherently got a substrate of anxiety to it. And I think one thing that's very important for us on a personal journey, but also as professional healers, is to consider how sexuality is actually conflictual for everyone. And it's conflictual for everyone for very good specific reasons of childhood socialization, which we can talk about. And that the question then is how one acknowledges and deals with the conflicts within oneself, the conflicts intrapsychically that one finds, and how one in some way moves through those in order to get out of what is really a little boy's sexuality. Little boy's sexuality is very bound up with anxiety, always. Very bound up with concerns and conflicts about gender and gender role very bound up with concerns and conflicts about orientation because I do think that Freud was right when he said inherently we're all polysexual. We all could become anything. So we all have bisexuality within us. And how we operate with those things and what we do with them says a lot, I think, about how our sexual inclinations cannot get bound up with it, not only with aggress aggressive energy, but also with this structure of power as domination subjugation. So that for many men who, are, who remain in what I would call a phallic uh, mode of sexuality, for many men their sexual life is entirely bound up with, with three sorts of things. First of all, it's entirely bound up with fantasy. These are men who are never really with their sexual partner. They're actually with the internal fantasy that is generating their sexual excitement. The phallic sexuality is inherently masturbatory, which means for many men that they simply use their partners, male or female, as orifices, whether vaginal orifices, anal orifices, or oral orifices, for their sexual gratification, which is a very hostile, inherently hostile and dominatory way to conduct oneself sexually. And then what happens, I think, is that real emotional intimacy gets split off from sexual lust. And we know this is the case with many, many men where real emotional intimacy is in one place and sexual lust. It's like the Madonna whore complex, sexual lust somewhere else. It's a journey for men, I think, to bring these things together to bring together lust and intimacy. And it's actually a journey, and I think as body-mind therapists, this is very important. It's a journey to get back into one's body sexually. Because if sexuality is appropriated by dynamics of domination, subjugation, the domination over the other in an host inherently hostile way, then if that's what sexuality is bound up with, then to a certain extent, sexual expression is always disembodied and the capacity for orgasmic pleasure is always actually limited, which was the point that Wilhelm Reich made in many, in many of his writings. So I think there's a lot here um, about how every man faces a personal journey 
on this exact topic and on this dimension of how much of our sexuality gets bound up in the idea of phallic conquest, phallic conquest, phallic nation over the other, and correspondingly suppression and repression within oneself that, that makes one disembodied to some extent or detached from one's sexuality, and, and then sexual expression gets bound up with, fast, with fantasy, with sexual partnering that is basically masturbatory and, and gets bound up with, with all the sorts of problems that we're talking about to do with the hostility that many men's sexuality gets, is part of the way in which many men's sexuality gets expressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've said a lot. I'm not sure I was on. No, so it's beautiful. It's very, it's very rich. And I want to, um, you know, oversimplify a little bit for the, to, to, to make a, a summary there, um, that in a way what we might, when we ask simply the question of is male sexuality inherently dominating, inherently aggressive, inherently violent, um, we might, if we stop there, we miss the issue. It's actually instead of, a, of an end, it's, you know, it's actually a beginning of a journey. Uh, and so we might find that, for instance, the uh, phallic uh, focus uh, is going to put us into the role of um, being, being more into domination and to subjugation as opposed to into literally intercourse and exchange. Uh, but yes. if we take it as a beginning of a journey and we start to embrace the conflict that, and the many conflicts that are inherent there, interpersonal conflict, intrapersonal conflict, uh, that's the beginning of the enrichment and opening. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. I think the more we can understand, I see, I think, I think ultimately my response to your question is that Male sexuality or female sexuality, for that matter, isn't inherently anything. It's not innately anything. But it becomes always in the course of early development bound up with power, domination, subjugation, and so forth. And the question is the journey as to how to get out of that into something that is more like genitality, which is emotionally integrated, integrates emotionality and lust, which is actually humanely engaged with the partner on an emotional level as well as a, a level of sexual pleasure. I think one way to, you know, often as therapists, we get into these questions with our, our male patients and clients by talking about how does the person see the object of their desire? How do they see their partner? How do men see women? You know, and and that is a very rich area to uncover and explore for many male patients and within ourselves, let's hasten to say that. I think the other way that one can look at it is not just about how do men consider the object of their desire, but I think also how do they consider their own body. And and I get quite specific with my patients, what are their feelings and fantasies about their penis? And what you often find in my experience as, as a body-mind therapist and as a psychoanalyst, is that men see their penis as an instrument. They see it as if it was a tool. 
like the tool that they purchased at the hardware store that they have on their bench in their garage, and damn it, that, that tool should just get up and work whenever they want it to get up and work. And also, it sort of bleeds over into how many men see their penis as an instrument of sub, uh, for domination, a subjugation of the other. I remember seeing a movie, I forget what movie it was, with some military people doing military training. And they were marching, and they were marching to a, a rhythm, a little ditty. And and the little ditty went, um, uh, this is my penis, and this is my gun. One is for fighting, and one is for fun. And I think that that, in some way, is very much on, uh, an, it's an exaggerated form, maybe, but it's very much how men see their penis as a phallic weapon a weapon for domination. And then, of course, I don't want to uh, avoid, we also have to, have to keep looking at how do we see the object of desire. Um, and, and sometimes if one explores that with men, one gets alarming answers. Uh, one of my patients once told me a joke. I'm putting joke now in inverted commas, heavily in inverted commas, because it's not a joke. And the, the quote-unquote joke was, what's the definition of a woman? And the definition of a woman is a life support system for a cunt. Wow. Now, that is, in the, in the most extreme way, I think, what we're talking about. This man who told me this joke is never raped and is not going to be a rapist. But the attitudes are so profoundly hostile and misogynistic. And although that, again, may be an extreme example... I think if one explores with patients and clients some of these deeper feelings and fantasies, both about their genitals and about what they want to do and with whom they want to do it with their genitals, one uncovers the fact that all of us as men are struggling to get out of this, this whole phallic uh, embeddedness in, in uh, the motif of domination, subjugation, and hostility. And not just our patients and clients, us as well. I mean, I know that this for me has been, you know, has been a lifelong piece of work on myself to look at what I think of almost as contaminants in my sexuality, uh, where it gets bound up with my hostile feelings, um, my feelings about power and powerlessness and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and maybe the little touch um, that I think is implicit in what you're saying is the sense that as we are becoming more aware of how prevalent it is, um, it is also a way to become more compassionate about it. That, um, you know, to come back to that experience of that, that myth of Parsifal, the idea is not to treat the tendencies to violence with violence, but actually to realize that uh, pushed to an extreme, uh, it actually pushes us to uh, disown part of ourselves, to split, and that what we're trying to do is to integrate, and that is done through a more compassionate outlook. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true, and compassion is, of course, 
Compassion is, of course, central to any form of healing. I think, however, we have to face our demons fair and square. Um, you mentioned how uh, this is sort of coming more, to, and I mentioned as well, how this is coming more to public attention, um, you know, with the abuses committed by Donald Trump and Cosby and Weinstein and on and on and on. But in a way, why the heck has this not come to f- into focus long ago? I mean, it, to some extent, feminism brought it into focus in the 70s, and some men started questioning about how their sexuality was bound up with the need to dominate women. But by and large, this has been all over the place and in every aspect of our cultural life and our sexual lives, and women know it, and children know it, and and other people, and many men know it, but we don't want to talk about it. And I think partly the dirty secret of how much men's sexuality is bound up with hostility, domination, subjugation, and so forth, I think is partly because men don't want to know. Partly they don't want to know and talk about it because they don't anyway know what to do about it, you know? And many, many men don't see any need to do anything about this. Um, And this is, I think, the very sad and tragic situation that we're in, that there is greater awareness, but in a way, this has always been with us. And uh, awareness now is sort of, in some sense, a little come lately. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to maybe, as we're coming to to an end to this conversation, uh, yeah. take a, a little hint from what you said to the hopeful note. Uh, it is indeed true that this has been. Um, visible for a long time, and we haven't really as a society done very much about it. Uh, it is also very true that, as you said, there are many men who have no desire to do anything about it. But you also said that uh, there are some men who are maybe more blocked by the fact that they don't know what could be done about it. And I think that the hopeful note is that through... Uh, discussions like the ones we're starting, um, there may start to be more and more of a, uh, an awareness uh, of, you know, maybe instead of staying with the tightness of unresolved, the nexus of stuckness that there is about this, there is kind of a, uh, a loosening up uh, a kind of some a way to get air to come in, uh, to face more of the interpersonal and intrapersonal conflicts that are included there, uh, to face the dynamics that one has within the power within society and how it affects us as men, as people, uh, and how it might affect our sexual lives, so that, uh, you know, there is more of that potential to grow. Well, I'm glad we're ending on a hopeful note because I think it's good to end with hope and is in a certain sense as healers we're purveyors of hope. But I think this is a mighty big challenge. And it's a mighty big challenge that in a certain sense has to come from men because the opposition that men sometimes experience 
from feminism has simply made them in many ways, many, many men, much more defensive. So in a way, it's, it's we as men who have to unpack our own sexuality in an enlightened and healing way. And I think we have to recognize as men that all of us need healing. None of us are exempt from that and shouldn't kid ourselves that we are. Well, I like, I like actually what you're saying as a conclusion and as a, a sense of, um, you know, it is very possible, very easy, very understandable that men can feel attacked uh, by the focus that this kind of discussions is having. Say, is essentially we're, you know, in an emotional way, it could be heard as, are men inherently bad? And uh, what you're pointing out is the idea that actually we, as men, can make it a point of departure for a journey to figure out yeah. how we can be more of who we want to be um, and that, uh, you know, our biology, our psychology, our spirituality, even our splitness and our difficulties, our stuckness, uh, can be a point of departure for a journey to actually lead a more satisfying life, uh, which includes bringing more joy and more satisfaction to the world and less uh, strife and uh, uh, domination. Yes. I think that's a very important point because men get defensive and we all get defensive. And to some extent... Uh, faced with looking at ourselves in this light in terms of the perpetrators of domination and hostility in our sexual lives. I mean, many people, and Parsifal did this, and you mentioned Parsifal, which was very appropriate at the beginning. You know, the solution is not really auto-castration. At least let's hope the solution is not auto-castration. Our yes. ways of having a... And also the solution is not for men to be less sexual. The problem is sexuality in, has, for many of us, implicitly and for exterior reasons of the culture, gets derailed into domination and hostility. The question is how to work our way out of that so that we can have sexual lives that are more joyous, not less. And I think that's a wonderful point that you make. Thanks, Barnaby, for a great stimulating discussion. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Our sexual lives, I mean, many people, and Parsifal did this, and you mentioned Parsifal, which was very appropriate at the beginning. You know, the solution is not really auto-castration. At least let's hope the solution is not auto-castration. Our yes. ways of having a... And also the solution is not for men to be less sexual. The problem is sexuality in, has, for many of us, implicitly and for exterior reasons of the culture, gets derailed into domination and hostility. The question is how to work our way out of that so that we can have sexual lives that are more joyous, not less. And I think that's a wonderful point that you make. Thanks, Barnaby, for a great stimulating discussion. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.